This week on Semi-Intellectual Musings, Matt's got class. We are joined by Megan Danger, who makes everything Kafkaesque. Oh no, it's the absurdities of lit class. on buddy pretty good long time no see oh god it's been like uh we've seen a lot of each other let's be honest <laughs> yeah we have we have but the 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 you know be previous to this we had you yeah know, like it's it, like it's been two or three really intensive kind of sessions yeah um but uh it's like we've been on a spirit quest together we've been connected in different ways yeah yeah uh texting yeah facebook yeah email yeah Google. soul string <laughs> the the dream catcher yeah absolutely. method of communicating where yeah. i wake up in the middle of the night with sweats and i'm thinking of matt sanderson yeah it's like my phil net yeah my dream catcher uh, okay uh welcome everyone uh to this week's episode of semi-intellectual musings i'm your co-host philip primo and i'm matt sanderson this is the podcast that looks at social sciences humanities and arts and we focus on books we focus on films We've talking about sports. We yeah. talked about technology. Yeah, we occasionally have a podcaster on from time to time. Uh, occasionally, well. we do. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, for everyone who's new here, semi intellectual musings uh, tries not to take themselves too seriously, and I'm speaking in the third person. And you know, <laughs> what we try to do is make an atmosphere that is kind of like sitting down at a pub and just kind of hashing it out with. Uh, with some friends. Yeah. And a place where you get a sour look if you bring your own notebook. Right? That, well, that is very true. Notebooks are always optional. Yeah. But one thing that isn't, Matt, and I don't think we've said it recently on the podcast, mm. but the things that we talk about are our real honest opinions. Absolutely. 100%. They're, you know, we try to get through that layer of fake news. Yeah. <laughs> fake news. Yes. <laughs> this is your podcast for fake news. Semi-intellectual musings. <laughs> That's the semi-intellectual. <laughs> well, semi is in there for a reason. I'm not sure it's there for that reason. No? Okay. Matt, um, there comes a point in everyone's lives where they meet that person. Do you know, do you know the, the person, like that type of person I'm talking about? Yeah. Yeah. You're talking about uh, Mel and I's love story. Right? No, I'm not no? talking about love. No, I'm talking about that person who reads what seems to be like a thousand books a year, mm. knows everything about literature, but not presumptuous, but sometimes, mm. uh, but just like, you know, the types of people who are literary, those lit- those arts folks. So people with an addiction to books, bibliophiliacs. Who like probably to smell books like we do. Yeah, I love smelling books, man. Um, for you listeners, we have something special for you today in store. Uh, we have on the line with us one half of... Oh no, lit class. Oh no, Pod- lit class. Podcast that, uh, well, we're going to talk to her about the podcast, mm-hmm. but we have Megan Danger on the line. Megan, welcome to Semi-Intellectual Musings. Uh, hi. Hey. <laughs> hey. Uh, That's awesome. There, we're there, not even going to edit that. There was just no way to live up to, to that intro without, you know, so just, I, I leaned hard into it. <laughs> That's awesome. Welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Uh, we are really glad to have you on. Uh, for all listeners who are new, uh, Megan has been brought up several times before on some intellectual musings, mostly in line with her pontificating on Twitter. Yeah, is, I, I think that's what you would is that what it. you do, Megan? Do you pontificate that's on Twitter? A, I, I pontificate the live long day. That's a really nice way of saying that I bully you on Twitter and tell anyone <laughs> else who wants to be your friends that I'm already your friend and they need to go, you know, somewhere else. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, that's well, awesome. I think I think Matt claimed friendship on Facebook yeah. in, a, in a thread. Yeah, and that was completely organic. I didn't know you had this uh Twitter, uh, we call it a, a bit of a pissing match up here in Canada, but uh, I didn't know you guys have this territorial uh war going on on Twitter. I just like No, I like Megan. I I'm going to claim her. She's ours. <laughs> Uh, there you go it was this is just proof it was meant to be it it was meant to be and we're so our podcast kind of uh align i think uh we look at social science humanities and arts and your podcast brings back dead authors and provides fresh takes 
you guys you guys talk about you know intelligent um you know scientific and social science type of things and we say the f word a whole bunch while talking about george orwell (laughs) (laughs) and that's that that, that's why we love you guys (laughs) you say all the things we want to (laughs) say but can't uh so megan before we get into your podcast and a little bit more about it um let's talk a little bit about you the, the megan you um I get the impression from your show that you are a diehard literary fan. Am I wrong? Um, eh, I suppose it's a it's a fair statement. I mean, I feel like with any um, English literature graduate, it's very much like a love hate, you know, sort of sadomasochistic relationship. <laughs> That's hilarious because uh, just like last recording session, I was saying to Phil, I'm like, man, I just kind of hate people sometimes, like just the general populace, <laughs> you know, and it's the same thing as social sciences. Like we get into it because we want to learn more, but secretly we just hate it. <laughs> Pr- pretty much. Like I want to read all the things except these things, these things that you're making me read. I don't want to do this. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah. So it's the forced readings that suck. The, the supplemental suggested list. That's fine. <laughs> So, um, so like, obviously like we're joking around a bit, but you do have a clear love of reading and, and discussing what you read. So like, when did that all start? Like, take us back a little bit into your personal uh, journey and, uh, yeah. And tell us when you, the love of reading kind of, kind of kicked off. Oh gosh. I mean, if you, if you wanted me to go like all the, all the way back, (laughs) was a small, tiny child. No, but literally my mom would put books in my crib um, so I was just screwed from the start. <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. Uh, I'm doing the same to Violet right now. My four month old, like she has oh, no, oh, she has oh. no chance. Ruin <laughs> <laughs> them right from the beginning. Yeah. No, like for whatever reason, that's always bo- books is like the one thing I'm better at than anything else. Um, when I was like four in kindergarten, I already knew how to read and, um, the teacher would set me up like having like helping some of the other kids learn to read but if you ask me to do like a fairly basic math problem right now i will not be able to do it i i will suffer and struggle and uh then use the calculator on my phone (laughs) so Uh, it's it's always been a pretty pretty straightforward uh direction (laughs) so some people come to books because they don't want to do math and they don't want to talk to other people uh, what's your favorite part of literature besides the, the whole, like you can be alone aspect of it. I mean, that's a, that's a pretty big part. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, I feel like it's the same reason that most like nerdy, lonely kids do is, you know, it, it allows you to go somewhere different to inhabit, you know, a different world and have, you know, experiences outside of your own even if you're like, you know, fucking, oh, ah, sorry, I, t- I said I was going to try so hard not to oh, swear. Oh, don't, um, please do, please do, yeah, we're not a family-friendly show, yeah. <laughs> I know, but you guys don't swear, I, I want to just try to keep it kind of clear. But it, you know, it's funny, uh... that, that's not even really intentional, it just happens that way, so go, feel free to speak freely. Um, <laughs> even, even if you're, you know, a, a broke-ass poor kid in the hellish land of Florida, Oh, that you know, wow. you can uh, you can go somewhere else and be someone else for a little while, and you can you can, you you can feel things. I mean, I'm also I'm a, a writer, so I mean, I feel like it's just sort of a natural hand in hand kind of situation. Is like, oh, I want to be able to give people that experience with my writing. So it's um it's kind of interesting. Uh, like for me, the solitary aspect of reading, like um, I like to like you know chill out or whatever, but. Um, that was never a big thing for me. For me, reading was always like, I was interested literally in everything. So I just wanted to like consume information almost. So I'm curious, like if for you, a solitary reader, um, I was wondering if you can kind of talk about the social aspect of podcasting a little bit. Something that Phil and I have been most surprised about is the community of podcasters that, uh, indie podcasters that sprung up. So as you're doing a podcast about this solitary kind of um venture that you're on how do you kind of reconcile that with the social aspect of podcasting um yeah no i was super 
surprised about that aspect of it too because i i had no idea where it's like oh wow here's this like huge community that you're a part of now and all these people and they're gonna talk to you and that's that's been a journey because i'm very bad at social media but um like i've kind of learned gotten a little better at it or or maybe not you've seen me on twitter um well you you seem to have <laughs> like you seem to be very social on twitter and facebook like you, you like you That's know if, it, the gifts the gifts just make it so easy <laughs> <laughs> yeah we've had our fair share of uh twitter uh gif wars uh which uh i'm always looking forward to the next one by the way um oh yeah same <laughs> <laughs> um so podcasting thrusts you into this sphere with other people um but before you met other people um, I imagine that you met RJ. Uh, now RJ is the other half of uh, Ono Lit Class. Uh, talk to us a little bit about him. Oh God, if he's in he's in the other room watching TV right now, and if he heard that, he would be running into the room to grab the microphone and start screaming, "Don't dox me, bro!" <laughs> well, no, no, no. <laughs> That's essentially his catchphrase at this point. <laughs> really? Okay. Well, uh, okay. Uh, so it's not doxing. <laughs> like... no, he's just a weird. He's just a, a weird, shy boy, which makes no sense if you if you know him and and even really just listening to the show and you hear how he is. But um, that's uh, really so, honestly that's really surprising. I thought RJ was the extrovert of like the team, basically. Yeah, no, he is. Um, I like to call him. He's the most introverted extrovert that I know. <laughs> that's awesome. That's awesome. Uh, but uh, R- so RJ has a um, is a lawyer, right? Or he studies law. Yeah, he's a lawyer. I know that that much. He's he's let's say he's a lawyer. Yeah. Um, he he is he is my fiance. Um, oh, <laughs> where's yeah. my fiance? Has anyone seen my fiance? Oh, he's in the other room. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Seinfeld reference. <laughs> <laughs> um, so when when did you when did you two to get get together? Like when did you meet and stuff? Oh God, we've been together for seven years in the next month. Congratulations! Um, thank you. It's, it's a little bit of like yeah, yeah, great, I know, awesome. I know. I, I feel oh, like I was yeah. obligated to say that. <laughs> so yeah, there's there's a little bit of that like holy holy shit, seven years, Jesus. Um. <laughs> Yeah, we met, um, I was in my last year of college, and he had started grad school, and we actually met through a, a mutual friend, um, and we, uh, that we, we realized we only lived like 10 minutes away from each other. Even super though, convenient. You know, I was, yeah, like we were going to school at like random different, you know, campuses, but like our parents' houses. <laughs> Oh, that's oh, wild! Geez. Actually, my my parents and my wife's parents live like three minutes away from each other. Actually, um, huh. yeah, they're, they're like the family homes are like three minutes away. That's so funny. <laughs> yeah, it's weird. <laughs> anyway, yeah, go on. So you guys have been together for seven years. Yeah, yeah, it's it's disgusting. Um, oh God, I say um and uh so much. Okay, <laughs> okay, uh, I'm gonna get you going on this then. Uh, so what's it like to sit down with an introvert, extrovert, kind of like, he, he's kind of whimsical. He's like, his jokes at the beginning are honestly funny. Like, I'm like, I'm saying that as a, as a listener, uh, his, his puns are funny. He's, he, he, but at the same time, he, he, sometimes you got to go, oh, really, really? <laughs> <laughs> now imagine living with that <laughs> all the time. <laughs> so, um, who does the research behind uh, Ono Lit Class? Who comes to the table prepared? Is it you or is it RJ? It, it is both of us, actually, because we both have our kind of little parts once we, once, once we kind of figured out how we were going to do it. Because the first couple episodes, it's clear that we were just spitting in the wind. Um, but So RJ handles all of the biographical research, and that's why he's the one who kind of reads that as he comes with his notes and then... Um, I'm the one who does the sort of plot summary write-up and looks into, like, adaptational uh, sort of research and things like that. So we both come to the table with notes and, and things uh, sort of ready to go. Uh, he's always been more about research than than me anyway. So as I said, uh, Ono Laclasse uh, looks at dead authors. Sorry, Margaret Atwood. But uh, on the whole, Mark, you know, I'm on, so sorry, Mark. Dead to all of us. Because, you know, she listens to our podcast, of course. We're all Canadian, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, 
but yeah. gen- generally dead authors uh, and provides, uh, you know, a summary, an overview of the work uh, and then some fresh takes. So what do you want your listeners? Like, why, why should we listen to you? <laughs> what message do you have for your listeners? <laughs> why should I bother? Why should uh, we download your free podcast? <laughs> well, well, this, like aside from it being a really fun hour to spend with you guys, uh, what message Just do you saying. want us to? <laughs> um, well, actually this was what, I was building towards before and then completely lost the plot of when you were talking about uh, isolated versus social aspects of reading, because I feel like even if the act of reading itself is isolated, required reading is a, a hugely social thing because it's such a common shared uh, experience, even though there are definitely going to be you know variations. There is still sort of the general literary canon that most people have to read at least you know through high school and the beginning of college and so my you know my idea was kind of that um most people hated the stuff that they had to read in high school and i even hated a lot of stuff that i had to read in high school and i went on to go do english and part of that was because you know i was a shitty teenager and shitty teenagers can't appreciate anything and so I like the- <laughs> yeah, well, okay. <laughs> a little self deprecating. That's all right. No, it's, it's, I, I, t- I taught intro to writing, like fresh intro to that fr- that that words. I can do yeah. words. <laughs> you, you can uh, only read them. You can't speak them. Huh? <laughs> I'm so much better at, at reading and writing than I am at speaking. So of course I do a podcast. Obviously. Yeah, why not? Yeah, yeah. No, that's one of the reasons I started our podcast as well. Is to it's almost like speech therapy for me with all my concussions. So I honestly get it. So just just go with it, man. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, so uh, you want to expand the shared experiences of required reading and required canons of reading. Um, is that how you go about picking the works for each week or each second week? Uh, yeah, that, um, I mean, I'm going, you know, first we're kind of trying to volley back and forth between stuff that we're familiar with. And then, you know, occasionally it'll be something that he knows that I don't really know more often than not. It's I'm picking something that he doesn't really know because RJ blew off the majority of his required readings in school and just kind of coasted. Oh. <laughs> I hated those people. I had to work so damn hard all the way through school. Uh, yeah, those people could just like show up and write the test. Yeah, yeah. that was me. <laughs> Despicable. That was me. I, I, I would read every 10th page in the book and I would fill in the blanks and uh, I would like get 80 to 90% on those exams. Yeah, my sister was like that too. My only sibling. So it just drove me crazy. So it's okay. We've established you the doppelgangers are on the, yeah, yep. on your show. Yeah. <laughs> I'm Megan. <laughs> That's a weird visual. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) So do you guys like, um, like go back and forth, uh, between episodes? Like I pick one, you pick one or like, or is it that you're trying to cover all the giants and the key works first and then kind of get into some of your favorites after? Like, it's always interesting. Like the reason I ask is always interesting with Phil and I, how we pick the uh, episode topics that we cover on our show. So I was wondering if you can kind of dig into that a little bit more. Um, it's a little column A, a little column B. That yeah, we want to try to cover big things that that almost everyone is, has had to read, like with a lot of the Shakespeare and with 1984 and like um, uh, oh Jesus, the Scarlet Letter. There we go. And mm. also a com- and then but then we did go to like some maybe lesser known or not as widely assigned stuff, like with their eyes were watching God, just because it's like okay, mm, yeah. we, we need to not have entirely white dudes yeah, yeah. <laughs> there's got to be some not white dudes up <laughs> in here and uh, we're trying to get better at that we're trying to to i mean and i've said it on the show is unfortunately it's a problem you're going to run up against when you are like taking down the classic literary canon because it's a lot of old dead white dudes yeah so i i do really try to grab um women authors and you know non-white authors and we need like i said we need to be a little better about that but we're trying we're doing our best so that's that's kind of the selection process is wanting to cover like the big universal stuff but wanting to make sure to show um you know a slightly more diverse range of authors and then 
also stuff that, you know, when you say it to people, they're just like, oh, like that was Moby Dick. Whenever you bring Moby Dick to, up to someone, it's just like, oh, no, why would I? Either they've never read it because it just seems like no, or they have read it and they're just like, Mm-mm, nope, never again, which is how I felt. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you, you know, you bring up something kind of interesting and it's um, probably one of the reasons why I keep going back to your show. It's that not only do you pick novels that most people have read or had to have read, read, uh, verb tense is difficult, um, but but you interject a certain politics into the reading of it. And, um, you know, if you go back through your entire archives of shows, there will be moments where you say, for example, or RJ says, uh, fuck all Nazis, fuck everyone who discriminates. Or there'll be moments where you say, you know, treating someone as different is just wrong categorically endpoint. Um, when you go back and prepare an episode and, um, think about the works, are you picking out those political moments or are those things that you remember reading it years ago? I know I keep saying this and I'm, I'm sounding just so wishy-washy, but it's a little bit of both because, you know, for the most part, I read this stuff so long ago. And so there's a lot of rereading and, you know, writing up and kind of in the course of that, it's sort of like, oh yeah. And then a lot of it is just things that pop into our head kind of naturally on the show that we'll just throw out there because neither of us are particularly good at filters. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's good. And yeah. like we try to say on our show, like these are our honest opinions and like there may be a few more F-bombs in your show than there is on ours, but it's the exact same. S- it's the same sentiment though. Like <laughs> I, um, I dropped a lot, uh, like a lot of F-bombs in our October bonus special. So I was just listening to that on the way up. I was like, wow, I swore a lot on this one. Um, so I was going to ask you, so you have a, did you go to graduate school for English Lit or is it an undergrad that you have? Um, undergrad was in English Lit. I actually went to grad school for creative writing because those are my life choices. Um, <laughs> hey, that's, uh, you're talking to someone who took anthropology by choice all the way to the PhD level. So trust me, I've uh, justified my academic choices with my family as well. Yeah, you're, you're in good company. People <laughs> yeah. who want to stay in school for the longest possible amount of time. Uh, which is like forever. I mean, at least at least a PhD. That's I mean, presumably that's gonna get you somewhere. I got I'm here with my master's degree in fiction. Yeah, um, well, I got a master's degree in anthropology, and nobody knows what anthropology is. So at least they know what uh, reading is. <laughs> like, shit. That's that's uh, that's the that Urban Outfitters Home Goods store, right? So <laughs> that's hilarious. Oh, zinger. <laughs> that's hilarious. Anthrop- anthropology. <laughs> um, that's funny. Uh, yeah. Um, our- RJ, uh, his undergrad degree is also in English literature, but he that was at the, like the eleventh hour. He started as a computer science major, then a math major, then a history major, and then an English literature major. And then he went to grad school for English literature, and then he went to law school because he too wanted to remain in school as long as humanly possible. What an asshole! Um, it was probably easy all the way along for him. I'm just over here getting concussions with my learning disability. Shit. <laughs> Um, so I was going to ask you actually from your time in uh, university, what were some of your favorite books that you were exposed to within like an academic setting, like within an educational setting? Like, did you have any profs that are like, Oh, you have to read Toni Morrison or something like this. And then you're like, Oh my God, she's a great writer. Like what are some of your favorites from your time at university? Um, gosh, that's tough because I didn't get exposed to a lot of stuff. Like I didn't read Toni Morrison until grad school. I, I came in, to uh, grad school with everybody, with all these people who uh, had done creative writing for undergrad. And so they had uh, more knowledge of like writerly writers and books like that. Whereas, you know, I'd been reading freaking William Blake for, you know, three, three plus years. Um, As I Lay Dying, actually, is one that I really liked and that by uh, William Faulkner that I've only liked more as time has gone on. Interesting. It's, it's, yeah. Such a, it's just such a weird, crazy book, but I really like it. And I, but it's not too crazy. Like it's not like you're you're putting like the sound of the fury in front of me or something like that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> trying to work your way through War and Peace or something. Yeah, uh, no. <laughs> uh, I'm gonna do. Uh, so we're gonna have to hashtag this, but I'm pulling an RJ, yep. and uh, I love the band as I lay dying. It's a great metalcore band. <laughs> 
Texas metal. <laughs> I oh, guess I so. See. There you go. It's like the only genre of music I'm unfamiliar with is like metal. And it's like Phil happens to be Phil's like favorite. <laughs> For some reason. All I, all I know is back back in the Hot Topic days is that was one of the bands that yeah, was on the t-shirts there. <laughs> That's awesome. Hot Topic days. <laughs> hot topic days. <laughs> is that when you read Faulkner as well? <laughs> uh no, I think like the hot topic days were pretty confined to the the high school period, because then eventually you get to the point where you're you're too old and you're just like not not that you're too old that like you're too cool to go into that hot topic, but you're too genuinely afraid of teenagers. <laughs> uh, okay, I want to pick up on one of the words that you just used there, fear. Um, Margaret Atwood has had an exceptional 2016 2017 year not only with the Netflix uh, adaptation of her novel Handmaid's Tale, but everything else that she's been doing. Um, and I kind of want to ask um, the burning question, the, the kind of elephant in the room here that everyone, I think, is, is going to be on everyone's minds. Um, but how has literature changed in today's climate? Um, do we consume literature differently when we go back and read something like Handmaid's Tale? Or do you see literature being produced differently in the current um, epoch that we're living? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the podcast. Like that's know, still for yeah. you. I'm just sitting there, like, uh, <laughs> thank God you didn't just ask me that. Come <laughs> on, our podcast. It's gonna be fun. We're gonna just talk about like books and stuff. I mean, I, I, I think. <laughs> totally you know, awesome. I, I I think it's it's very difficult to not create something political just just by nature of the times we're living definitely um even if you're even if what you're making is not overtly political in nature um like for example i'm writing a, a thing right now just like just like a, a book thing but and it's and there is there's nothing political about it. like it's a fun fantasy thing but it's like you know what let's you know it needs to have like LGBT representation, like let's throw you know the, the diverse range of characters in there. Let's do things like that. And so, even if something does not have a clear like political stance to it, in the way that like the obvious way, where the Handmaid's Tale is written for a very specific purpose, I feel like a, any creative work being uh, made now, it, it, there's going to be a political aspect of it, even just if it's in terms of, you know, we need to be, you know, in inclusivity is the big thing now. And especially where people, you know, if people do see themselves in aspects of the outside world, it's usually in like a really negative way where crazy and awful people are saying you're not a person or they want to do bad things to you. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's interesting, like you even said earlier, how on your own show, you try to be sensitive to uh, what authors you're including, right? And then, um, and also you've mentioned as well that the education system, at least the, your experience through it, um, is very like white male centric, uh, dominant, I guess. Um, so that's interesting. And I think these politics of inclusion and exclusion are kind of fascinating in today's time we just um released our blade runner episode and within there we were talking about the 1982 movie the original and harrison ford's like awful like sexual encounter with this cyborg yeah. robot right yeah. and um yeah. i mentioned like i saw it like the movie for the first time like 15 years ago i'm like oh it's just harrison ford being like 1980s harrison ford it's kind of indiana jones-esque right and then now i i rewatched it before recording the episode and I was just like disgusted that I ever thought that that was okay. So it's interesting politics. Um, they change the way we look at the world, but it's up to us to kind of make those adjustments, you know? And yeah, um, definitely. I, I gonna... have a weird, Oh, sorry. No, no, go uh, ahead. Go ahead. Well, no, that I have, a, I have a Blade Runner story related to go that. Go for it. Yeah. <laughs> that uh, we actually, in my postmodern literature class, we read Do Androgen Move Electric Sheep, and then we, cool. we watched Blade Runner. Yeah, we talked about them novel on that show as well. Yeah, And um, I went to this teeny, tiny, like, liberal arts school, roughly the size of, like, a postage stamp. So there were, like, six kids in the postmodern literature class, as you awesome. might <laughs> imagine. It how, was pretty great. The, the professor Phil and I are was... getting excited over here. <laughs> yeah, how postmodern of the school. Ooh, small class sizes. <laughs> Very dynamic. The, the professor was great. I loved him. Um, 
God, he showed us. It's it's funny, you know, in terms of books, but like he showed us so many cool movies. Mm. Uh, but anyway, we watched Blade Runner, and uh, that scene occurs, and everyone is just so deeply uncomfortable. And you know, afterwards, he's like, "All right, let's let's talk about this. Like, let's break this down." And there was this kid. Oh gosh, his name was Alex Alexander. Like Alex <laughs> Alexander Alexander. <laughs> He had he had white he had white boy dreads. Wow! And oh, one he, of those. It, he smoked about as much pot as you would assume. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so, oh god, he was just he was the worst. He didn't graduate, but at this point, I'm just being mean. But anyway, <laughs> no kidding. Leave this guy. Uh, alone. He's got a double name. Shit. <laughs> anyway, the the you know, our professor said, you know, like, what what what, you, what did you what were your guys' thoughts? What were your guys' feelings? How do we want to break this down? And he like raised his hand. And he's like, I was like, really like this. This was weirding me out. And I was like, is this bitch gonna get raped? Oh. oh. And we were all just like, oh my. And the professor, he's like, his his jaw just dropped, and he's like, Alex, what the hell is wrong with you? <laughs> <laughs> Good, yeah, like a proper call out. Like. Yeah, yeah. No, as a as like as a TA, I'm sure Phil has similar experiences, but I've. Like we would have routinely like 50 papers at the end of the semester to mark and um, all the time you'd have at least five in there, like a good, good percentage that would just say something just so out of left field and so um, like, I guess, unintentionally sexist or unintentionally racist, but it's just like, wow, you, you get the sense that these are these cultural norms and perceptions take a long time to change and it's just sort of thrown around like term like bitch which i i don't really use anymore um it just tells you that like culture takes a lot longer to change than politics yeah Yeah. no i i'm right there with you guys i when i was in grad school i taught intro to academic writing for three years and that's the yeah that's the the freshman writing (laughs) the meat grinder (laughs) yeah oh god some of those papers where it's just like you are the youth of tomorrow oh dear god (laughs) (laughs) no i i would have i I would have papers that are like um biologically speaking women are more prone to like want to stay home and raise kids they're they're more naturally drawn to the domestic sphere and the other one that i'd always get is um Honestly, like it, it feels disgusting to say, but um, African Americans are better at sports because they used to be slaves. And oh God, no! I got honestly, those, like I got all those the time, too. all the time. And it was it's after. I'm worst. talking. These are the year end papers. This is after a semester of like Maddie, like giving them a schooling on gender and racial politics, <laughs> and then you're just like, you feel like a failure. They're like Jesus. Uh, <laughs> anyway, I mean, sorry. They're, they're they're 18. They've never had any actual opinions that are theirs before. I guess, gonna have but some also, really I, bad ones. I feel like I didn't have stupid ass opinions like that when I was that age. Like I might have said some dumb things. I know I'd said some dumb things in my time, but not like just straight up sexist and racist. I, but anyway, sorry, rabbit hole. But uh, Phil's looking at me. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so uh, that was deep. Uh, <laughs> sorry, welcome to the show. Um, That's the other aspect. <laughs> uh, let's let's lighten the mood a little bit. Uh, we're gonna take a short break, but before that, um, Megan, uh, do you have a song for us? Uh, do you have yes, a song in mind? I do. Um, do you have a story I guess, I guess about? I do. do you have a story about a song? Oh, geez, do I have a story? I had a I had a song just because I I heard it the other day and I really liked it. I don't know if I have a, a story about. Oh no! A song. Um, well, that's what's a story. the what's the song and what's some of the meanings behind it? We'll do a, a symbolic analysis here. Songs you're songs you're dead by Norma Taniga or Taniga Taniga. I don't know, and it's about being dead and out of this world. Hmm. So you're dead <laughs> by Norma Taniga. When yes. we come when we come back. Some Kafka. Don't sing if you want to live long. They have no use for your song. You're dead, you're dead, you're dead, you're dead and out of this world. You'll never get a second chance. Plan all your moves in advance. Stay dead, stay dead, stay dead, stay dead and out of this world. 
Run fast, don't stand in the sun There's too much work to be done You're down, you're down, you're down You're down and out of this world Don't ever talk with your eyes Be sure that you compromise You're dead, you're dead, you're dead You're dead and out of this world Hear the unloved weeping like rain Guard your sleep from the sound of their pain Long gone, long gone, long gone, long gone And out of this world When you smile and it tears your face It's time for the inhuman race You're down, you're down, you're down You're down and out of this world Now your hope and compassion is gone You've sold out your dream to the world Stay dead, stay dead, stay dead You're dead and out of this world Welcome back, everyone. That was You're Dead by Norma Tanega from 1966. Now, Matt, I bet you can't guess this, but Norma, good old Norma, had a number 22 hit on the U.S. Hot 100 chart all the way back. Can you guess uh, in 1966? I don't you're not. You're never going to guess the name of the song, but no. it was Walking My Cat Named Dog. That's awesome. Like, I have a dog uh, that we like to call Cat Dog Baby, so that makes sense. Her name's Friday. Speaking of absurdities, <laughs> yeah. Matt, because what and you just said as well. is non-sequitur and an absurdity, <laughs> yeah. uh, we have Megan on the line still. Yeah. Hey, Megan. And hey. <laughs> after all of this rambling, after like 30 minutes of rambling, we did have her on to talk about something in particular, and that was the France. Franz Kafka. I thought I thought it was to talk about myself, but fine. <laughs> <laughs> We're gonna talk about self and not self with Franz Kafka. So hold on to your hats. <laughs> uh, Onola Class is her podcast for every, anybody who just tuned in because that's not how podcasts work. But uh, Kafka is part of a, I would say, suggested reading list. He's not really that read in uh, in high school or college, is he? No, yeah, he's not He's not as required. That was why it blew my mind when RJ was like, oh, yeah, I read this in high school. And I was like, really? Really? Wow. <laughs> yeah, I don't know uh, uh, how that happened. But one of Kafka's more, I'm going to call it famous or infamous works, uh, Metamorphosis. Mm, yeah. Uh, you, did a pod, you did an episode on it. Um, give us kind of your high level or your rundown of Kafka and who he is uh, for us, social science, arts, and humanities folks. Um, sure. Although, of course, you could always go listen to our episode. <laughs> Give <laughs> yeah, us a synopsis. This whole yeah. thing is a plug for that. But, um, <laughs> but thanks for bearing the lead. <laughs> yeah, but thanks. For- <laughs> <laughs> hey. Um, what was that one? Oh, God. It was called, I think it was called John Leguizamo Giant Bugs and the Jewish People because yes. we examined... Uh, of course, the the story, the metamorphosis, and Franz Kafka's changing relationship with his Jewish faith, and RJ deciding that wouldn't it be funny if Gregor turned into John Leguizamo because he's in a movie called The Pest? <laughs> this is what I live with. <laughs> but John Leguizamo, he's like he's just so able to capture all these different characters. He's such a phenomenal actor, right? <laughs> okay. Yeah, we've been pointing Dead to end. him on our episode. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so Franz Franz Kafka is uh is he's just he's very German. Um that he's kind of like, let's take the dark kind of shadowy themes of Edgar Allan Poe and just mash them together with uh just the heightened sense of absurdism and just sort of weirdness and i am not great at this one i don't have a script in front of me but 
Kafka is the darkest of dark humor. It is pure gallows humor, which is why a lot of people don't connect with it at first is because it's hard to see that it's meant to be kind of like a funny thing. You know, when I first read the metamorphosis, I absolutely did not like it at all. I was like, okay, why does this just, it just, it, he just dies. Like, what, what is this crap? Why do right. you turn into this creature? What am I supposed to get from this? And then, you know, you get, get a little older, you take a few courses and it's like, you know, it doesn't matter why stuff happens, weird, terrible, nonsensical stuff. And it won't have a reason. And you could either, uh, you could either cry at it or you could laugh about it. And he kind of did both. I mean, he suffered from what is most likely pretty severe depression, among other things. And even though, you know, everybody said, I say everybody, like he was noted by, you know, friends that he was funny, that he was smart, that he was just a fun person to be around. But if you look at his like personal writings, he is just like, I'm just gross and terrible and nobody likes me. And so I feel like a lot, what a lot of people do, you know, when they're struggling with mental health stuff is they put on, you know, like an outward kind of personality that's like comedic and, and things like that. And I might be speaking from experience. Right. Uh, but anyway, yeah, so he, it, it's, it is funny. It's just it's that kind of funny where this is so completely dark and absurd. And, you know, I just, I don't have a choice but to laugh at it. And I feel like that that's Kafka in a nutshell. <laughs> uh, yeah. And um, so in your episode on Kafka, you made the tentative connection between um, metamorphosis. And as you were just describing this kind of analogy or this mirroring of how depression is felt. Um, perhaps I would even extend it because, you know, I was thinking because I've been thinking since I've listened to it, probably a representation of him uh, having contracted tuberculosis as well and being treated like an other and that othering sort of process that goes on. And, oh, um, you know, there's always layers with Kafka and there are with great, writers as well right and when you start to peel back the layers is when it starts to get kind of tricky uh, so yeah on the surface it's absurd but when you start to peel it back there's a message there and um you know this is just my you know two second two cents commentary on it um but i think a lot of people dismiss it because of because of that approach to talking about real life things and um you mean like people say that it's like oh these are just the writings of a crazy quote-unquote person yeah 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 and that's uh, like political as well right yeah i think it's othering well well exactly yeah. this is it right and this is where i'm kind of bringing the question here is that um at the start of the show you said that you're mindful of choosing works and authors um now we have you know a whole list of great people who have suffered depression who have suffered anxiety, who have suffered illness and had been othered, and then their works become kind of othered. Do you feel that Kafka is one of those authors who has been othered over the years? Uh, yeah, I think that's fair enough to say. I mean, when you're talking about um, a, a canon of, of writers who've suffered from like depression or mental health issues, you're talking about like 90% of writers. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I feel like people will write him off just like the same way where if you're watching a movie that's kind of weird or reading anything that is just kind of weird or outside of the norm, that's just like, oh, man, he was just crazy or he was just on drugs. I bet they were on right. drugs when they made this because it's just an easy way to be like, I don't have to think about this now. I don't yeah. have to try to figure out what someone was trying to say here. Yeah. So it's interesting. I was wondering if we can return to the absurdity of Kafka a little bit. Um a lot of his works uh, are also written off uh, because they're fragmentary, right? And and he died pretty young, I think in his 40s, um, from TB, as Phil mentioned. Um, so a lot of his fragmentary nature of his works is actually just because he wasn't able to complete all of them. And I'm thinking of uh, the trial here. Um, so I was wondering if we can kind of make a connection between Kafka and the beat writers of the 50s and 60s. And I'm thinking of like Kurt Vonnegut and William S. Burroughs and because they wrote in a, a similar sort of Kafka-esque style as him where it was sort of like patchwork, cutting and pasting and putting like the narrative together in a haphazard way, intentionally haphazard way. So I was wondering if you can 
kind of speak to Kafka and how he influenced other writers going forward? Uh, I think, yeah, I think drawing a connection between Kafka and Vonnegut absolutely makes sense. Although I think Vonnegut in one of these rare, the rare case has more optimism. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> Which yeah. I, I don't, yeah, I don't think you can say that about too many people, other people. Um, yeah, Kafka uh, is the darkest of dark for sure. <laughs> yeah, well, William S. Burroughs, it's it's a little closer there. Um, the only thing I've ever actually read of Burroughs is Naked Lunch, and I did have to read it for school. And uh, I am not the person to talk about Naked Lunch I, because I, didn't I, be- get it I become yeah, I, I got become halfway that through person. And yeah, yeah. I become that person <laughs> I was just making fun of, where I go like, "This is just crazy. This person was on drugs." Except we know that he was actually literally yeah. on drugs. Like sometimes yeah. it doesn't work out in that sense. Like <laughs> sometimes it's just a mess, right? And I think Naked Lunch is yeah. one of those, right? But people who were on drugs at the time and were really into the fact that everyone was on <laughs> drugs at that time. We're like, whoa, man, this is blowing my mind. What, you don't get it? Oh, my God, how can you not get this, man? you got to open your mind. That sort of but, idea. But, <laughs> oh, yeah, but there, is still, sort of. there is still the connection where, where it is fragmentary writing, and it is that, that sense of there is a shadowy cabal. There are forces that you do not understand that are at work, although in Burroughs' case it was because he was c- completely off his ass on you know opiates and such. <laughs> That, that he assumed the shadowy cabal was there. <laughs> so I was wondering as well, like another thing you mentioned was um, Kafka's crisis with his sort of Jewish faith. So I was wondering if you can kind of flush that out a little bit and then um, connect it maybe to, I don't know, some contemporary works of today that we might be familiar with. I'm thinking of the Cohen brothers, basically. So I was wondering if we can kind of talk about Kafka's Jewishness and then connect it up to with the Cohen brothers, perhaps. Uh, well, I mean, the the thing I would make a beeline for immediately is a Coen Brothers movie, is Serious Man. Which, oh yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, yeah. RJ RJ loves that movie, and I didn't want to like it, and I got very mad about the ending. Mm-hmm, and, me too. Yeah. <laughs> but 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 then we, well, but then we talked about it, and he was saying, you know, it's like, but it it makes perfect sense because you don't, you know, it, ugh, I can't, you know, what, I'm not even gonna bother because I'm gonna screw it up. He, he described it in a much better way, but. It's it. You want to talk about um, Kafka esque in the sense of you are being controlled by by forces that you're unaware of. You're you're trapped in some sort of situation where you you can't see an end of it. And Jewishness, <laughs> I feel like a serious man is kind of like the perfect uh, sort of mashing of that of this idea of the expectations that you're held to by your faith and. Uh, Judaism is a really good example of uh, uh, that there are a lot of sort of outward expectations if you're in like a Jewish community. Um, and even historically, the, like uh, being a feeling of being constantly surveilled is pretty much a hallmark of the Jewish faith as well. I mean, the shit they're put in ghettos, for goodness sakes. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Well, yeah. <laughs> of all faiths, but yeah. Um, yeah, see, I'm, I'm sitting here remembering, you know, being a given my mom, my mom's worked at uh, the Jewish community and or the Jewish community center in her neighborhood uh, since I was like nine. So I'm thinking about like just being a Jew, just you know, all these old ladies constantly being like, "Oh, you do? Are you doing this? Are you going to Hebrew school? But <laughs> is you gonna marry a nice man who's a doctor?" And you're talking about <laughs> actually being surveilled and you know targeted as uh, for your you know you, you're going in a more serious way. Um. <laughs> I'm doing, I'm just off here doing my thing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I want to come back a little bit to the notion of Kafka-esque. Uh, I think it's a term, a word that gets thrown around a lot and you've said it um, and I hope you say it again, but misappropriated uh, to describe some works. What is Megan's, what is your interpretation of Kafka-esque? Uh, Kafka-esque. I mean, when I... It's funny when I want to like give an example of Kafkaesque. I, I the first place that my brain goes to is a writer who predates Kafka, but I know influenced him, which is Edgar Allan Poe, which I know I talked about in our uh, last episode. Is the the Poe short story, uh, the Pit and the Pendulum, mm, and yeah, yeah. yeah I I think that's like just a really good example of Kafkaesque because you never find out like there's so many things you don't know you never find out why this guy has been imprisoned 
And you know, like, the Inquisition is imprisoned him, but you don't really know any of the details. You don't know who was behind it specifically, or if he did it, what he did, if he did anything. And, you know, how, how the machinations of the situation is even working. Like, his prison keeps shifting and changing, and we don't know how it's happening. It's just happening. He wakes up, things are different, and have gotten noticeably worse. And I feel like that's the uh, Kafka-esque is this sort of escalation of a situation. And, you know, like I said before, it's the idea of there are forces at work that are, are targeting you. You don't know why. You won't know why. There might not be a reason. It's, it's you know, bureaucracy and the almost like the, what is it that they, they say, uh, the banality of evil that something terrible will happen not because like there was like an evil mastermind sitting with the cat on his lap going like oh, ha, ha, but because of you know weird bureaucratic red tape and you know this signature happened here and this didn't get filed there and now suddenly you know everything's ruined forever uh so as you're giving that description of kafka-esque in my mind i'm seeing Twin Peaks. I'm seeing Lynch and Twin Peaks <laughs> and the execution of that. Yes. Um, oh my God. Yes. And you know, even having to do with the you know the bureaucracy bureaucracy aspect of it, which is more visible in I guess Castle by Kafka. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. yeah but for sure. Is a, a hallmark of Lynch's sort of work in Twin Peaks, right? There's always that omnibus bureauc bureaucratic entity that looms, and you know we can dismiss it, but its power is still kind of there, right? Um, but besides Lynch, because I think the Lynch Kafka link has been made a lot yeah. <laughs> to say the least. I mean, if you're going to, people struggle with Lynch. So it's like, you know, if you can make a connection, you goddamn it, you're going to make it. <laughs> <laughs> I know one thing about this. Um, but the other connection is to the Coen brothers, right? And we've mentioned them before. So how, how does Kafka come through in, uh, in their works? Uh, well, for one thing, they're Jewish, and they like to torture their protagonists. Yeah, totally. <laughs> uh, uh, but actually, it was so funny. It was after we'd uh, recorded that episode, like long after, where we uh, were watching one of the few Coen Brothers movies that, I, that neither of us had ever seen, which was uh, The Hudsucker Proxy. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, I've seen that. No, and no idea. Can you it describe has, it really it, like, quickly, like the premise? Okay, so the and the premise of the Hudsucker Proxy is that uh, Tim Robbins is this like just naive, fresh-faced guy who's coming to the big city, and he's he's got big ideas, and he joins this corporate, this soulless, you know, bureaucratic, heavy sort of corporation, and uh, this like corporate giant, and their um, their like CEO commits suicide, and they need to like try to sell off their stocks or something. I can't remember the specifics, but either way, they need a patsy to take his place, like the board of directors. So they picked okay, Tim Robbins okay. because he is a, a naive, fresh-faced young man, and they're hoping that he'll fail and like ruin the company so they can sell their share, something to that effect. But he invents the hula hoop, and it's a huge success. And the the best <laughs> the, the best part of the movie is. He, he he keeps trying to explain his idea to people in the beginning, and he just shows them a piece of paper with a circle drawn on. He's like, I've been working on this for years. And he'll show them the paper and he'll go, you know, for kids. <laughs> okay, so that's the absurd kind of uh, thing that happens there. <laughs> it's such a good movie. But in the beginning, when he first gets this job, he's down in the mailroom. And right. it's, it's a Kafka-esque oh, yeah. nightmare yeah. down there because it's... There's, you know, there, no one knows what their actual job is. They're just moving paper around, yeah. but they're not moving it around fast enough. And yeah. there's like just arbitrary alarms that go off. And and it's interesting uh, that that reminds me of like, I don't know if you've ever seen 1984, the actual movie that they made. It's like a British movie, but they're um, like the look of the Newspeak um, office is like that. And the descriptions in the book are kind of like that, where people are just doing functions for the state they don't really know what their role as cogs in the wheel is. Um, when we were talking about, when you were talking about like the fragmentary nature of Kafka and the no endings and the no kind of causality, like you don't really know why these things happen. They just happen to this person. 
that reminded me a lot of Monty Python's. I don't, yeah, I don't yeah, know. That yeah, just popped yeah. in my head. And then, the, <laughs> yeah, and the, the bureaucracy, and like they poke fun at bureaucracy all the time, right? exactly. Right. Oh, yeah. The, like, yeah, the British state and also British culture as well, right? And then um, the escalation of a situation, like that was another thing that you mentioned, was very Kafkaesque, and that reminded me of the shit out of Faulty Towers. I don't know if you've ever seen that show, yes. but yeah, <laughs> okay. So it's like happening, and then all of a sudden it escalates. Um, the the Germans episode is my favorite. The um, uh, John Cleese gets a concussion in that one, so I thought it was pretty cool. But um, anyway, so is there any other um, interesting Coen Brothers movies that you'd like to like kind of rattle off that remind you of Kafka quickly, and then we're we're going to branch into something we call a friend or foe. So, so what are some uh, Coen Brothers uh, movies that you might be interested in letting the people know about? Oh, dude, like like almost their whole work can kind of be attributing. No Country for Old Men operates on that oh, same yeah. sort of principle that stuff is just gonna happen, and there most of the time there ain't shit you can do about it. Uh, Barton Fink is kind of more Jewish man is tortured by forces outside of his control. Uh, gosh, what other ones? I mean, I feel like every Coen Brothers movie, with the exception of maybe stuff like where like True Grit, which was you know like a remake. Um, has that sort of heightened sense of unreality that uh, yeah, you, yeah. is kind of a trademark of like a, a Kafka uh, story where it's it's like the real world, but it's, it's just there's something unsettlingly unreal about it. Uh, okay, I'm going to give you the final word on Kafka. Is there something that has been annoying the fuck out of you forever that you just have to get off your 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 chest get it out there what would it be about kafka about kafka maybe not maybe you don't go to bed thinking of kafka no i i really i really don't <laughs> maybe, maybe people should. don't maybe people don't give just, uh, enough shits about kafka to, i don't know <laughs> yeah I, I just drift off to sleep Franz. <laughs> keep your tb to oh, yourself yeah. though. hope i don't turn into a larva <laughs> yeah really uh no i guess it's like what you said i don't really talk about kafka to enough people for there to be something like god damn it everybody gets this wrong <laughs> and, and that's kind of Fair the enough. point isn't it like it's um this is a great writer um he died too young um pe- he's widely misunderstood but to me he's one of my most like inf- the most influential writers that i ever like read um he kind of taught me phenomenology and existentialism like but nobody know like nobody's read anything they might have heard about the metamorphosis and that's it and they probably just know about the title so maybe the whole point in kafka is that he's a non-person right yeah uh, and he does probably have the title of worst excuse to break up with your fiance ever mm, what's that like multiple fiance oh yeah <laughs> <laughs> this is true <laughs> You're not Jewish enough. You're too Jewish. I don't like your Zionism. Your uh, Zionism. Your Zionism. Right. Oh, you, I want to marry you. I like your Zionism. Um, okay. Um, would you like to play a game of friend or foe with us, Megan? Absolutely. Oh, please say yes, because yeah. if you say no, I don't know what we yeah. do. Yeah, Just yeah. Like, You're already nope. in our bureaucracy now, Megan. Uh, for anyone who is new here, Matt and I started playing this game a while ago. It's silly. It's whimsical. It's a way to debate the merits and demerits of things around us. Um, okay. So the, the point of the game is a friend is anything that we like, uh, anything that we love, anything that, you know, maybe you want to make out with, maybe you want to marry, uh, you, you want to spend the rest of your life with attached to, uh, like a TV remote, Mm. you know, allows you to sit on your butt and change the channel. Foes are those, uh, you know, they're tricksters. They're really nasty. They're unwanted. They're evil scours of the earth that seek to destroy the very fabric of our being and our ways of life. So as we saw with Anthony Van Dessauer from the Curse of Silver Lake podcast not too long ago, these things are like soup. So, (laughs) Megan, friend or foe? Uh, Actually, I'm going to start with Matt. Oh, I'm I'm going to start with Matt, so not to put Megan on the hot seat. Um, (laughs) Matt. Friend or foe, paper clips. Paper clips? Paper clips. Uh, wow. Uh, friend, actually. I'm, I'm going to go with friend for paper clips. Um, first off, they are a very effective means of fastening no more than eight papers together. Yeah, but, maybe ten. 
when not, I was not, not a whole bunch. See, when I was a, a younger man uh, back in grade five, we used to make these um, paper clip um, projectiles that we would shoot across the room at each other with elastic bands. We would kind of roll up a piece of paper into a triangle, and then I'd wrap the paper clip around it to create more of like a bullet. And um, yeah, I used to shoot that at girls to show that I like them. So, uh, friend for me, paperclip. Uh, how did that work out for you? Not well. Yeah. Okay. Not well. But, okay. So, Matt, it's a friend because it's purposeful. <laughs> uh, Megan, paperclips. Are they friends or are they our foes? They are foes. Ooh. Admit. Yeah. No, I'm going straight foe on this. <laughs> Many is the time that I have wrangled with a paperclip. Because I, I either had too many papers and it just wasn't strong enough to do mm-hmm. the job, or if I'd had papers and they had been paper clipped, all uh, all it took was like the most you know errant of, of breezes or exhalations to <laughs> make them scatter <laughs> to the four winds. Like when you if have you a paper clip it. that's too big for the limited amount of papers you need to clip together, that uh, creates like a wind hazard almost, right? Interesting. Exactly. Huh. And they're they're bent in the wrong ways, and you can't unbend them. And if you try to 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 put it back in its original shape, you're just gonna screw up the, the tips of your fingers. You can when you actually need paper clips, you can never find them. That's, and that's when you, true. Yeah. And when you don't yeah. need them, you have just a, a bounty of paper clips. Have you ever jammed your uh, fingernail with a paper clip? Like when you're trying to bend it back into place, and you and you get your yeah, like the Vietnamese uh, fingernail torture thing going on there? Damn straight I have. That's why they are foes. <laughs> All right. Paper clips are foes for Megan. Because they're so dangerous. So what about you, Phil? Friend or foe? Paper clips. I am like Matt. Paper clips are a friend, but not for the reasons that Matt has given. Okay. Okay. So the first thing that I think of when I think of a paper clip, I think of being able to pick a lock very effectively. Mm. Have you ever done that? Let's not go into legalities, <laughs> Matt. We don't, we don't. The, the, the potential of the paperclip is enough for you. Yeah, he likes the danger too. So you can pick a lock with a paperclip. Uh, you know the ones that are coated with different colored plastics? Of course. Great mm-hmm. for organizing small amounts of paper. Okay? Yeah. Small amounts of paper can be well organized. You can sort them. So you can say, these are required reading, readings. These are somewhat required. I really mm. like this one. Don't touch mm. these, right? Um, you can also use book, uh, you can also use paper clips as bookmarks. Oh, So yeah. you don't need to bend your pages back. Don't, don't dog ear a nice book. Keep it, keep it sane. Oh. Keep it beautiful. Just stick a paper clip <laughs> in the page. That's funny. I've never done that. I actually have dog earing like techniques where I will dog ear the bottom of the page. If uh, it's something I need to return to and then I'll mark up the columns and everything. See, Matt, with a colored paperclip system, you can do that and cause no damage to your first edition Kafkas. I, I feel like Keep I'm enhancing pristine. Kafka with my notes. Maybe. <laughs> uh, if it's windy out and you have a lady friend whose hair is blowing all over the place, you can whip out your little collection of paperclips and offer her one to be able to secure her hair to her head. And so Matt, you can also comb your beard with them, I imagine, too, Phil. So, so, so Matt and I have a, have a keen relationship between women and paperclips. Yeah, yeah, and totally. I don't know how it works out. Mine's destructive, yours constructive. Maybe, maybe they ran. Uh, interesting. So functionalist and structuralist arguments here. That's beautiful. So we got two friends and a foe? Two friends and a foe. Uh, Matt, uh, you said paperclips were a friend. Yes. Megan, paperclips were foes for you? That's my answer, and I'm sticking to it. Okay. Yeah, I didn't convince enough. you otherwise, did I? <laughs> nope. All right. <laughs> awesome. Um, okay. Thank you, Megan, for coming on Semi-Intellectual Musings Thank with us Thank you very today. much, Megan. It was awesome to have you on. Thank, thank you guys for having me. This was a blast. That, cool. that was a lot of fun. Um, can you tell the fine listeners uh, where they can find you and your show? Uh, where you can find us wherever you get your podcasts, where we're on all all the fun, cool apps the kids are on these days. And um, all of our stuff is at onolitclass.com. You can like us on Facebook. You can follow us on Twitter at onolitclasspod. You can scream our name into the wind, shaking your fist with righteous fury. And you know what? I'll probably, I'll sense it in the back of my mind. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> All right, uh, folks, check out Ono Class. Check out Megan and RJ. They put on an amazing show. And, um, you know, we hope to have you back at some point. It would, it would be great to connect again. 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and we'll, then, you we'll know, get that get... extroverted introvert on the show as well. <laughs> Maybe someday. Um, and then we got to get much, much more likely got to get you guys on our show. Yeah, that'd be oh, cool, yeah. too. Because then then you'll just you'll you'll expose us for the for the charlatans and fools that we are. You see how Phil just did that, invited himself onto your own show. Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Phil, why don't you tell the good folks how they can reach us? Uh, our show is on Twitter at the underscore SIM underscore POD. Our Facebook page is at the Simpod. You can send Matt and I an email at semiintellectual at gmail.com. We are on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Hot Addict, or your podcatcher of choice. Just search semi-intellectual musings. Our website, which includes the archives to the show and all our bonus content, including patio sessions and our monthly bonus episodes, is thesim.podbean.com. Thank you so much once again, Megan. Uh, we had a blast. Well, I did. I'm a guy. Well, okay, I'm going to speak for Matt. We had a blast. Yes, yes, we did have a blast. <laughs> thanks for joining us, Megan. Um, th- again, thanks for having me. Uh, happy to do it, and looking forward to the next time I can come and ruin your show. <laughs> Beautiful, anytime. <laughs> Standing invite. <laughs> and we will uh, thank you for listening, folks. Uh, we'll talk to you all next week.